0: Well, friends, um, I was reading an an interesting story uh, the other day about a man named Bernie Demet, and Bernie um, is an Australian, and he was in a hotel room in in Brisbane, and um, he was on the eighth floor, and he walked out to the balcony, and as he indicates, he was seriously considering ending his life. He was a very, very successful IT engineer, had built a wonderful life and family, but he felt hollow, he felt empty, he was lacking in hope, he was depressed, and he thought this might be the way to end it, probably painless, until he remembered that he had opened the drawer of the bedside table in his hotel room, and inside was a Gideon Bible. And he had spent time reading it and considering it. And so, as he was carefully considering, he prayed. He said, Lord, if the things that I read are true, I pray that you would make yourself real to me and known to me. And his life changed. Total 180 ultimately went on to found a Christian ministry. Um, Obviously, the Lord could have used any means to do that, but he chose to use a Gideon's Bible that had been put in that hotel room to save his life physically and spiritually. The Gideons were founded in 1898, and just kind of brushing up on some of the statistics regarding the Bibles they've given away, it, it's, it's jaw-dropping how the Lord has used this organization. By 1926, they had made the goal, you know, to put a Bible in every single hotel room in America. Um, these two men met back in 1898. They were traveling salesmen. And back in that day, um, you could actually room with someone else if you didn't have the funds to room by yourself or if there wasn't enough room. So these two men, coincidentally believers, were staying in the same room. They talked about wanting to be a witness for Christ in this world of traveling salesmen, and the organization was born. By 1926, they had distributed over 100,000 Bibles by 1926. By 1929, just three years later, they hit over the million mark. By 1953, they had distributed over 25 million Bibles in various venues. In the 1970s, they hit 100 million. By 1990, 500 million Bibles given away. Guess what they achieved in 2001? One billion. It took them 14 years later, just 14 years later, to hit two billion Bibles given away. They have distributed Bibles in over 200 countries, 108 languages. Annually, every year, they give away more than 70 million Bibles. That's more than two Bibles per second. Back in that hotel room, they were thinking about, what shall we call this? and they prayerfully considered, and they said, we shall be called the Gideons because of how God used such an unlikely person, someone who, who really had no business being a part of any kind of deliverance. God used someone like Gideon to achieve great ends. God took these two humble businessmen in 1898 and their passion, and they've given away billions of Bibles. It's truly incredible. So this morning, we're going to be focusing on the namesake of this organization. We're going to be focusing on the judge that we know and love, Gideon. So with that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning, we find ourselves in Judges chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18. Initially, remember, beloved, these are These are the very written words of God written for you and written for me. Judges chapter six, verse one. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave the Israelites into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive. It was so bad, so onerous, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, in caves, and in strongholds. In other words, in their own land. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other Eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza And did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you From the hand of all your oppressors, I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior or courageous warrior. Um, just a second, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, if what you say is true, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. In other words, he's not with us. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Um, pardon me once again, my Lord, um, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan, it's, it's the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, well, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you who is talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return indeed the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it you may be seated now as robbie indicated a few minutes ago we've seen the cycle of the judges we've seen this pattern unfold week after week we've been introduced to this idea of a judge hopefully by now If you've been here for a few weeks, you could define or explain what a judge is. It didn't have a precursor in Israel, and there was nothing after the judges that really corresponded one-to-one with a judge. Um, You kind of take a a tribal chieftain and like a civil magistrate, combine it with a, a military commander, You take all of those together and wrap it up, and that was a judge. And we've all heard about the judges in our life, Gideon and Samson and Deborah and others. We know about judges, but do we really understand how the book of Judges fits in to the story of redemption? And that's what we're trying to see week after week, is how this particular story and these particular narratives within this book point us to a greater reality what did we say about the cycle of the judges little quiz for you you don't have to actually answer rhetorical questions these are what have we seen week after week with the cycle of the judges with each new judge things get more intense okay with each new season in the life of Israel things get worse their sin increases Their bondage gets more difficult. So with the cycles of the judges, each one is a little more intense than the one before. So there's going to be similarities and dissimilarities. The similarity here, what warranted a judge? What warranted the need of a judge? It was idolatry. The people would forget how the Lord had just delivered them last time. It seems about five minutes. And they forgot what the Lord had done for them. They forgot about how he had rescued them. They went back to their old ways. So that's similar. Can you tell me what is dissimilar? What is the factoid kind of in the first half of the story that is different than the other ones? If you were taking a presbytery exam right now, Lord forbid, would you be able to answer that question? The people sinned. The Lord raised up the Midianites to oppress them. How bad was the oppression? Really bad. It was worse than being conquered and forced to indentured servitude. Like they just, they were being slowly starved away. They had to live in caves. They had to go to cliffs and strongholds. Why? Because the Midianites would come in and just ravage the land. That's what the text indicates. They had no resources. Their economy was destroyed. They had no food. They were desperate. And then God raised up a judge, right? Isn't that what the text says? It'd be a good time to read the text if you want to scan it. He did not raise up a judge. What does he do here that he had not done in any of the other narratives? He raises up an unnamed prophet. And the unnamed prophet before midian i'm sorry before gideon comes into play god raises up this prophet in verses 7 through 10 this is interesting he does this in this situation when he had not done it before in this same way verse 7 when the israelites cried out to the lord because of midian because they were dying they were starving from hunger and deprivation He sent them a prophet who said, so remember, what is a prophet? We're setting the stage also to go into a little series before Christmas on the minor prophets. What was the role of the prophet? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, you name the prophet, what was their purpose? They were lawyers, spiritual covenant mediators. They were prosecutors. They were sent on the scene to remind Israel that Israel was in breach of covenant. Another little Presbytery question. When everything is said and done, what is the essence of God's covenant? What is the foundation, the bottom level, the foundational truth? I will be your God, what? And you will be my people. There are other um, metaphors that God uses to describe his relationship with his people do you remember what those are? Or at least one of those? Husband and wife. Marriage. I will be your God. I will be my, you will be my people. I will be your bridegroom. You will be my bride. There was intended to be depth of relationship and intimacy and love. The Israelites weren't just following abstract rules. God wasn't just the rule giver. He was their redeemer He was their lover, he was their husband, he was their protector. And so really what's going on here is Israel has been an unfaithful spouse with all that that entails. When you think about infidelity, it's hard to imagine anything more personal, more hurtful. And so when Israel started to worship the gods, of the nations they did not drive out that wasn't just hey we're breaking some school rules this was tantamount to adultery they had pursued another lover they had pursued another spouse nothing could be more serious so god raises up a prophet notice the the personal intimate language that's used here verse 8 the prophet said This is what the Lord of God, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I even drove them out before you and I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Yahweh, God Almighty, He's not on an ego trip here. He knows that it is in their best interest. To be in covenant with him, to love him, to listen to him, to follow him, to be his bride, following the gods of the Amorites and the Baals only would lead to death. So notice what's happening. So he's making this formal accusation, this formal prosecutorial statement. You would expect judgment to happen after that in a sort God raised up for them another deliverer. Gracious and kind, and he chose perhaps the most unlikely judge that we've seen so far. I don't know if you think about Gideon in that way, but when we look at this whole narrative, you will see this theme reinforced that he chose someone that the rest of the world would have said had no business leading any kind of um, rescue. Okay, look with me at verses 11 through 13. I think this is fascinating. This is incredible. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord. I want you to remember that. Who in the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord? I want you to look at the way he presents himself, the kind of language he uses, how Gideon responds to him. It's just, it's truly fascinating. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So he was in this pit where you would normally tread the grapes, okay? And so he was trying to, you know, um, thresh the wheat, if you will. He was trying to sift the wheat from the chaff, in this pit, if you will, which is not where you would do this. You would, you would sift the wheat from the chaff on a hilltop with a breeze. But because of the Midianites, because of the raiders, he was forced to do it in this wine press. Verse 12. These words are dripping with irony here. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now the NIV here Typically we do the ESV, I chose the NIV here, it's a little more readable, but here it probably should be more like uh, courageous warrior. You're going to see how ironic that is. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty or courageous warrior. And then, you know, we get to know Gideon's personality. I think the author wants you to be acquainted with Gideon's personality, kind of like this timid, meek, he's like, apologize for living, like, governor, sir, sir. Mr., very important person, pardon me, my Lord. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord, he's abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have. So just preliminarily, how much strength would that be, do you think? Go in the strength that you have. How much would that amount to? Almost nothing, which is the entire point. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. here's the key, the interpretive key, am I not sending you? You have no strength. You have no bona fides. You have no credentials. You have no power to do this. I am sending you. That's all you need to know. Look at Gideon. I mean, this is bold. Um, Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, uh, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my family. You think that was true? Definitely, it was true. That was true. He was the weakest. He was from the least of the clans. Verse 16, the Lord answered, not that you are the strongest. He doesn't argue with him on that. He goes, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. What was Gideon's problem? And he is, in many ways, a depiction. I mean, he's a true person. This is a literal, true narrative. But he is also, in the same way that like Jonah was depictive of the hard hearts of Israel in his day, Gideon is kind of the embodiment of Israelites in his day. And what fatal mistake had Gideon made? We make the same mistake all the time. I just uh, heard a story very recently um, about—I had not heard this—about a young man at TCU who was the victim of a random shooting, and he lost his life a few weeks ago. They had—some friends had gone out on a Thursday night. Um, They were getting back into their cars to go home. One of the boys was approached by someone that he did not know, and the person— Shot him and killed him, and it was just the worst thing imaginable. The community was just reeling. And one person in particular was um, really struggling. I mean, the person was born and raised in the church and knew and loved the gospel, but was just like How do we understand this? This person knew this person. How do we understand this? How do we grapple with this? If 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 the gospel is what we say that it is. If Jesus and his loving kindness is real and true, how could something like that happen? And that was troubling. That's exactly what Gideon is saying. The angel of the Lord comes and speaks with him. Who does Gideon think it is? Like Gideon initially, Gideon thinks that this is a person. So... The angel of the Lord is obviously coming in what kind of appearance? As a person. The angel of the Lord is Yahweh God Almighty. That's who the angel of the Lord is. He has all the attributes of God Almighty. He is coming veiled in flesh to Gideon. Later, when Gideon realizes who it is, he goes, you know, he's like, I should die. Why? Why does he say that? Why does he infer he should die? Because you can't see God and live. So many scholars believe this to be a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ manifesting himself as the angel of the Lord, interceding on behalf of his people, even here, encouraging his people. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ interacting with Gideon, Look at the text. He tells them, you know, basically, the Lord is with you. Mighty warrior, he's with you. And then Gideon responds in the same way that this precious friend did. If God is with us, if what you're saying is true, then where is he? You know, if, if God is true and he's real and he loves us and he cares for us, then how can you explain that we're being ravaged by the Midianites, it doesn't make sense. And then he goes on, furthermore, why would you choose me? Why in the world, if you really are God, why would you choose me? I'm the least of my clan, the least of my family. None of this makes any sense whatsoever. What mistake has Gideon made? We've already confessed this as a people. Gideon was reasoning in a way that was right in his own eyes. Gideon was reasoning in a way that seemed to make sense to him, because from a human perspective, I admit it's hard for us to understand how gracious, tender, loving Jesus, the God of our salvation, could allow things that happen in this world to happen. It It is very hard to understand. Verse 13 is the million-dollar question. It's the question of our time. Pardon me, Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? His faith is weak. It's teetering. He needs something to convince him. Look at verse 17. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes. He knows there's something very different about this person that he's visiting, visiting with under the tree, he realizes something's off, something's different. If now I have found favor in your eyes, that's a very ancient Near Eastern way of speaking. Give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. So he understands that this, this, is, this could be God speaking to me. Give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering, and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will not wait. I will wait, rather, until you return. Who here doesn't resonate with him? Who here has not longed to say, or maybe you've said, like I have, Lord, if you're there, if you're real, if this is all true, if this isn't Sunday school superstition, if you're real, would you give me a sign? Would you make yourself known to me? Who here doesn't resonate with that? All of us. If you're a living, breathing person, can identify with what Gideon is saying and notice the graciousness, the accommodation of the angel of the Lord. Does he say, no, you fool, get away from me? He says, no, I'll wait till you get back. All right, go to panel six. It's going to look like a lot of text, but it's exciting. (laughs) It's fascinating. Verse 19, Gideon went inside. He prepared a young goat from an ephah. That's like five gallons of flour. He got five gallons of flour that he made, and he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the yoke. So this is just fascinating. This has the hallmarks of, of a meal and a sacrifice. And he's bringing that to this person, this angel of the Lord. Verse 20, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread And place them on this rock. Wouldn't it be great to know where that rock was? Place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Verse 22, Gideon realized this. When he realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord. He's calling him Yahweh. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's inferring I should die. It should be over. But the Lord said to him, peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Why didn't the disciples die? when they were in the presence of Yahweh God Almighty. Because his glory was veiled in the person of Jesus. This manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament, it's accommodating, it's gracious. It's not, he's not coming in judgment in that sense. Look at 24, Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah, Of the Abizerites. Okay, so that concludes the first part of the story. Let's look at the second briefly, 25 through 32. That same night, notice what the Lord does. I'm telling you, these stories are fascinating. This reads like a very interesting novel. Look at what happens the scene changes. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. You know Gideon's saying, "Uh, pardon me? This would have been like a little community. Who is the one who built the altar to Baal? Whose was it? It was Joash, Gideon's father, is the one who was responsible for Baal worship, underwriting it, funding it in that area. He says, I want you to go to take a bull from your dad's flock and pull it down, pull down this altar, and then use a second bull as a burnt offering. Okay? Um, He also says uh, he wants you to build... The altar from using the wood of what? The Asherah pole. Um, question for you. If you look at these kind of Canaanite reliefs, have you ever seen in a museum the way that Baal would be depicted? What the image they ascribed to him was? A bull. Take the bull from your father's flock. Take wood from the Asherah pole. Build a fire. Build the offering. What was that going to communicate? Who the God of the universe is. It was um, a way to, to mock and disgrace and reiterate who the real God was. This is how impotent Baal was. To stop any of this look at verse 27 so Gideon took 10 of his servants so he's gonna be obedient with a tiny qualification he's still not there so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him now how many servants did he have he had 10 so he was a man of, of like the family his dad was probably the leader of the community He's a man of means. He says, he took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family, insert whom there? His father. He would have been mortally afraid of his father. He's, he's taking from his father's herd, disgracing him, humiliating him, destroying the town, idle sight. I mean, so this is why he does it at night. Look at verse... 27, he did this at night rather than the daytime because he was afraid of what was going on. How did God refer to him again? I'm forgetting. Mighty warrior, courageous warrior. um, No, that's dripping with irony. Verse 28, in the morning, can you imagine what Gideon, he's just sitting there in the morning. He's just waiting for people to start yelling his name, okay? Verse 28, in the morning when the people of the town got up, There was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole. These poles would somehow be used in idol worship. With the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. Not Baal's altar, this new altar. They asked each other, Well, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, Bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Okay, are you getting what the author is saying? Just how bad had things gotten in Israel? They had been delivered three or four times already. It has gotten so bad, so immoral, so wicked, so vile, they want to kill Gideon for destroying the altar that should have never been there. They don't praise Gideon. They want to kill him. That's how bad, that's how dark things had gotten. Look at verse 31. Here, you got to be thankful for the dad who has at least some of his priorities in order, okay? Joash replied, this is kind of shocking. Again, this shows who it is that is overruling all of this because this was Joash's idol, he had funded it. He was gonna lose face in front of everybody. You would think he would lead the cause to discipline his son, but Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, like almost prophetically. Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Like, do you need to defend Baal? Does he need a protector? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, if he's that strong, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So, because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Baal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. In other words, let Baal deal with him. If Baal's honor has been disgraced, let Baal deal with him. Isn't this amazing? Here's his father all of a sudden becoming a first-rate theologian. And we're thankful for that. All right, final scene. And we're going to put a bow on this, hopefully. Verse 33. All the Midianites, Amalekites, and other, other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So this entire thing is coming to a head. Whole armies are coming to deal with this, verse 34. Then the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit of the living God, came on Gideon, and he sent, I'm sorry, he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizurites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, so they too went up to meet him. And then Gideon led the troops in victorious battle. Is that what it says? Look at Gideon. I, you know, a lot of times in these narratives, um, you know, we read ourselves into the story. You know, who, who are we in this narrative? We're Gideon. And we're not the Gideon later in the story you know, by God's grace, who leads to victory. We're like, our faith is oftentimes so weak. Look at what Gideon does. Like, he's, he's, like, battle's about to happen. He, he has had an experience. Every one of us would give our right arm to actually speak with Jesus or the incarnate God. We, I'd give my right arm to do that. He's had that, but it's still not enough. Verse 36. Gideon said, "Um, Lord, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. This would have been totally miraculous. Like maybe for the first couple times since the spring, what's been on the ground when we got up in the morning and on the grass? Dew. Dew. Where is the dew? It's on everything virtually. There's like the glaze on the street, all over your car, your windshield, your hood, obviously on the grass and the ground. And so Gideon knew that this would be a total miracle if the entire ground is dry, but the fleece is wet. Look at verse 38. And that is what happened. The ground was dry, The fleece was saturated with water. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. The refreshing water of life right there. (laughs) It's amazing he survived. It is amazing he got out of there alive. Because that's impressive. He takes the fleece, he wrings it out an amazing amount of water, then what does he ask for? He asks for a control, okay? He's like doing a double-blind, placebo-infused study, okay? So now he asks for the reverse. Oh, uh, Lord, that was very impressive. Everything you've done is really amazing. However, if I could just ask one more thing, and don't smite me, please, okay. Then Gideon said to God in 39, do not be angry with me. Let, that's the understatement. Let me make just one. This is so ancient Near Eastern bartering like they're at a bazaar, if you will, negotiating prices. You know, allow me. He's, he's just like prostrating himself. Allow me just one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. Look what the Lord does, the angel of the Lord. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. What do we learn from this? Beloved, do not, do not try to interpret your circumstances. But we do that all the time. We all walk around like spiritual CSI investigators, and we're trying to read God's providence and interpret our circumstances. Well, if if X, then Y. You know, um, if if um, this house fell through, so God must not want me to have this house. Which, obviously, in God's providence, you didn't have the house. But we we try to be like. Um, Boy, this is a, I don't even know why I'm thinking of Matlock. That's a bad analogy, right? I mean, like, <laughs> I'm just telling you, that's what came into my mind. I'm sorry. Um, but we do that. We, we, we try to find, we read reasons and rationale into everything. Do we not? Do we do that in our relationships? You know what I mean? Like someone walks by you at church and doesn't say hello, and what do you immediately infer? Well, he's a jerk. He didn't say hello to me today, or, you know, like, what have I done? We immediately think, what have I done? Having no idea, the guy had a migraine, like, can't even, you know, like, but we infer these things. We send a text. We don't get a response. What do we infer? Well, they're mad at us. They're upset with us. We've done something wrong. How often are you proven wrong? So many times you feel convicted. If that's true person to person, we are in no position to try to interpret our circumstances. When difficult things happen, like were happening happening in Gideon's day, Gideon interpreted the circumstances to indicate that the Lord was not with them. Who was Gideon talking to when he made that inference the Lord Jesus Christ isn't that ironic God in Christ was talking to him at the moment that he was doubting God's presence with his people incredible our feelings are not a reliable guide we'll end with this how can you know how do you know that Jesus loves you you can know that Jesus loves you you can know that he's real because someone named Jesus from Nazareth gave his life as a ransom for many. Gideon wanted sign after sign, the greatest capital S sign we could have ever gotten. God the Father loved you, he loved me so much. He did something we would never do, he gave us his son. His son did not go begrudgingly, but went willingly because he loves you and he loves me. When you're struggling, when you can't make sense of things, trust the one who can, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is strong to save. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you. Lord, we pray that we would do what you told Gideon to do. You told Gideon, go in the strength that you have, which is nothing save my strength, Go in the strength that you have that I've given you to save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Lord, we pray that our confidence would not be in our ability to interpret circumstances. We pray that we wouldn't make our feelings a barometer of truth. We pray that we would trust in the sign to end all signs the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us to trust him and love him all of our days. We pray in his matchless name. Amen and amen.